so far ahead of the game, and then one day I just woke up behind. What do you mean? A few years ago, I heard my roommate talking about me when he thought I wasn't home, and he called me a detective, and he quotes. I could hear him doing this with his fingers. Parth, it's showtime. Trent, usually I ask you in the past tense, but what are you eating currently? Yeah, I don't mean to make podcast history, but off mic, I was self-conscious saying I hadn't eaten anything and that you would have to do um, the majority of the talking. And he said, Trent, get it together. It's past noon. Go eat something. And so maybe this sh- having the show is for the best, keeping me on track nutritionally, even though I'll never satisfy the elementary school health class dream of fulfilling the food pyramid every day i was just gonna ask you don't you don't fulfill the food pyramid who does that you know has several servings of fruits and vegetables in the same day come on i know it's a, it's a crazy thought what have you been eating thanks for asking trent i had raisin bran because i realized we were going to be recording it was twelve fifteen, and i hadn't eaten anything and i was like i'm just gonna i'm gonna have a mouthful of raisin bran do you like raisin bran i've never had it but it seems like um objectively like the most boring cereal is there actually raisins in there there's raisins which i enjoy it's kind of like less frosted flakes but you know what i like it and you know what else i like i like cutting to the intro trend we have a big interview yes this is a historic moment all right cue the intro Welcome back to Cross Services, where we talk about the movies. Each week we talk about a film and hopefully have a crew member of that film to talk with us about their experience working on the picture. This week we have the writer and director of the film, The Kid Detective, Evan Morgan. Is this true, Trent? This is all true. We have a podcast. Evan Morgan was the first writer slash... Well, he's the first director we had on the show. Uh, we've had a screenwriter before, but wasn't didn't it feel so cool? I like, felt empowered. I had so many questions to ask him because, like, every inch of that movie he played uh, a major role in. He also told us about him making his Hitchcock appearance, and that's a really good story later in the interview. Maybe you got to stay tuned the whole time to find out about it. I don't know. Yeah, there's a bunch of really cool stories, and we're going to just cut straight to it because this is a long interview. Yeah, Uh, strap on your fucking seatbelts, people. It's like an hour, 15 minutes. You don't have to stick around the whole time. But uh, if you want to, that'd be pretty cool. Just so you guys know, there is a certain part about 20 to 30 minutes in, I think, where the audio quality changes because his mic or his headphones weren't working anymore. So just so you know that, it's not too super drastic. It sounds relatively the same. Anyways, um, Trent, are you ready to cut to it? You want to you want to be the one that says, let's cut to the interview? Yeah, let's cut to the interview. Evan, wait, Parth, was he a nice man? We always... Come on, this is our thing. Was he nice? Yes, he was very nice. Yeah, incredibly nice. All right, let's go to the interview with Evan Morgan. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our interview with Evan Morgan. He's worked on several shorts as well as co-writing the feature film The Dirties, and he was also the writer-director for our film today, The Kid Detective. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, it's my pleasure, guys. 
you're our first director ever. Oh, um, wonderful. We're very happy to have you. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I watched another interview uh, that you did, and I found out that you went to York University for film, I believe, and we were wondering how that experience went and what important things did you learn from going to an art school? Well, okay, I mean... I- there are obviously kind of two schools of thought when it comes to film school and how, you know, important it is for aspiring filmmakers. Um, Mm -hmm. It technically revolves that discussion and debate kind of revolves around the technical education. And I agree with people like, you know, Tarantino who, who are saying that you can gain that education via experience. You know, you can, you can figure that part of it, part of it out on your own. And, um, um, you know, just learn by doing. Uh, I, I honestly didn't retain very much of the technical stuff anyway. It was not what I was primarily interested in. And um, it a lot of it, you know, may have stayed in, you know, my noggin for a, a, a few years. But by the time it became relevant when I was, you know, making any of the sort of more significant movies or whatever, the, short, uh, the, the latter shorts and then... Um, uh, dirties and the detective, like it, it, most of it was gone. And, um, Mm -hmm. the one thing that I would say, I, you know, the reason I would encourage people to really seriously consider going to film school is the community and, uh, the, um, relationships that you form with other people who are talented in a different way, uh, whose talents complement whatever yours might be, who are similarly, you know, hungry and, and may share the same taste. And, um, uh, that was far and away the most valuable part of the experience was just meeting my future collaborators or people I continue to work with, um, and, uh, and, and remain some of my best friends. And, um, and also, I mean, like the experience of that community is so special too. You know, it's, it's kind of like, being at summer camp in a way because film programs tend to be smaller and they're more intimate. You just really bond with those people in a unique way, which, you know, much like when you're going to summer camp it, it, for that reason, specifically, I just have a great amount of nostalgia for my film school experience and um, huge amount of like love for the people that I met there. And the ones particularly who I continue to collaborate with. I, uh, I think like, you know, as far as the actual education, it's always going to be related to the professors or the instructors, right? And their personality, whether they see something in you specifically, I think that's important. That was very meaningful, you know, for me with particular people who I was, you know, uh, for particular teachers from when I was in university. And, uh, and so some of them, you know, I think really, provide a unique education in that respect but i don't think it's you know it's it's not like whatever the kind of the course outlines are i don't think i honestly got a lot of that stuff i don't think i retained a lot of it same way that i don't remember anything i learned in high school you know like yeah in terms of like math or science biology whatever it's all gone and i kind of felt like that was the case for a lot of what was actually taught to me i think maybe what resonated with me more specifically was stuff related to screenwriting because that was always my my first point of engagement and uh the films that i admired the most i was i think appreciating them more on the level of the screenplay than for example like the cinematography it's just the part of the process that i've always identified with and then there were friends of mine who really gravitated towards more technical pursuits and i'm sure that that education for them was much more significant in their development than 
mine because they're are just it's a much much more mechanical process. And as far as writing, I think we only had like two maybe three like writing courses in all of film school. It was not, it, it felt kind of marginal and the education that they are able to offer. Again, it sort of, it, it, it so much relies on who your professor is, who your instructor is. And if they're teaching you like Robert McKee, that's problematic. I think, because I think that that's a dangerous, I think it's a dangerous philosophy <laughs> and, and, and dangerous book. And I read that when I was a kid and it really fucked me up because he says stuff like, you know, it's going to take you six months to a year to write your script and you have to quit your job and you have to know all the things that happen and, you know, the character's daily routine and blah, 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 and shit that you actually don't need to know at all. What I wish we had more of in film school was an antidote to that, where people are giving you practical advice in terms of, you know, how do you write a script? Like, do you outline it or like, is that for everybody or do you just start, you know, writing, writing? Like, what do other successful screenwriters do? Like, like things that are not so abstract in terms of theory but just in terms of like when this ends and i lose the structure and i lose the deadline how am i gonna continue to do this you know like what are the things you can tell me that are going to help me structure my own life when this is over right and that i thought was really lacking it's something that you know i think they could really benefit from building into you know a core set line or whatever maybe you guys have had a different experience but that that was how uh mine felt so with all that being said uh what was the earliest uh conception of the kid detective and i guess how did you first put those thoughts down on paper speaking about like outlining and early drafts well okay so it started as an idea i'd had uh in film school for a short film and um I never ended up really writing it um, because it wasn't like a short film idea. You know, I think what I've learned only after now I've stopped making short films have I learned the, 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 the difference between short film ideas and feature length ideas. Short film generally is like, an, you know, something happens like a letter gets sent to the wrong house. You know, just something happens. It can unfold in a relatively short period of time. And, you, you know, a, a feature idea, I think, is, is generally it's like a character, you know, or again, an inciting incident is, as well. But like a lot of the time, I think it's a character or a world that you want to explore. And this was a character. And, and um, it was an idea for, you know, a short film about a, a kid detective who was still a kid, but was solving really grisly murders or, crime, you know, just really dark uh, crimes, kidnappings, etc. And I wanted it to take place in a kind of heightened universe that was like sort of a twisted, you know, Encyclopedia Brown, um, you know, suburban paradise sure. gone sour. And uh, that was the first idea. And um, it wasn't until after I'd met Adam, who I was a I was just a huge fan of his. I thought he was so funny on the OC and then in things that he appeared in subsequently. And um, I just knew before we even met that like he was somebody that I wanted to work with. And uh, uh, I had the, you know, I was, I, I ran into him originally at a short film festival about 10 years ago and traded emails with him and then ran him to him again two years ago at another film festival. And um, that is when I first uh, mentioned this idea to him where I kind of looked through my notes and, you know, my old stuff that never got done to see if there was anything that I could update for him. And at that point, this premise felt, you know, much more viable and exciting than when it was actually just going to be a kid. Like the central irony was, was really exciting for me and the comic potential of imagining an adult version of encyclopedia Brown and nobody thinks he's 
special anymore. Nobody's impressed when he, you know, solves the small cases. I just thought that was great and so suggestive of not only a character and, and you know, that character's kind of style and temperament, but also the world, you know, that he is uh, relying upon for so much of his identity and the, the, uh, by the world, I mean community. And, uh, and so the first part of that script appeared really quickly. The first act I wrote really quickly. And by the time I had to figure out, okay, well, what's the mystery? Then it started to take much, much longer and I got stuck for a long time. Um, but that was the origin of the, of the idea. Yeah. I, I heard that it, you spent eight years between, I think, the genesis or the, the first draft or first act being written to it actually getting made. I was wondering, like, was that eight years spent, like, I, I think you said that the problem with the mystery is that you have to sort of reverse engineer it and that takes longer. And I was wondering, were those eight years spent developing the script or was the script sort of written and like minorly changed and it was really trying to get financiers for the movie? Well, it was eight years, t- like, total. Like, from the okay. moment I had the idea to do it with Adam until it was on, you know, all those screens during the plague. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. you know, like, it was eight years total. Maybe a bit shy of eight, actually. Um, yes, yeah, it was, it was, it was uh, about seven and a half years, probably, all said and done. So, breaking that down, every part of it took a long time. The script mm-hmm. took, I think, me a, a year and a half just to finish the first draft. And um, that is not good. <laughs> like, that is, that's slow. And that's how Robert McKee wants you to write it. Not to be too, you know, not to harp on that for too long. But uh, I, that, I, um, uh, like I said, like the, the, the premise was very suggestive to me of a character world and also tone because it had the potential to be funny, but also very lonely and dramatic and sad. And, um, um, and so that stuff, you know, kind of unfolded very quickly. And then when, as I said, when it got to the mystery, I was like, well, shoot, he could really be solving anything. Like, you know, it, it's, it, uh, maybe it's a murder, maybe it's a kidnapping, maybe it's who knows what, like I was sort of overwhelmed with the possibilities. And my first instinct was, well, why don't we try and take this character to Los Angeles and then it'll be a fish out of water story and he can be looking for a missing or, you know, a movie star mm-hmm. or someone who was found dead. And it'll just literally be like a Raymond Chandler, but with an Encyclopedia Brown protagonist. That was my first instinct. And I spent prob- probably uh, like five months thinking of that type of scenario and exploring it and not really feeling like I was excited about what I was finding. And it, right. you know, it wasn't until I went back to Brody and was like sharing some ideas with him. And he's like, no, no, you got to keep it in the town. Um, and that's when it all clicked into place for me. And I was like, oh, okay, well then if it stays in the town, I think that was maybe even the point that I d- determined he should have had a case that in, in his past that he couldn't solve. Because prior to that, I think, I was just relying on the fact that, oh, what is impressive when you're 12 is not impressive when you're 32. And um, and so that was a huge, you know, shifting of gears. And um, I explored that uh, and it started revealing itself again at a, you know, much greater pace. And then I got stuck again. And one of the things I learned in the process of writing this was like, what makes something take a long time? It's not this slow crawl, this sort of like trudge through every day, you know, only coming up with one or two ideas each day. What I noticed is the ideas, they flow pretty fast. And then you spend 
six months not having any. Like you right. just spend a lot of time, not necessarily not having any, but having the wrong ones. You, you're you're stuck and you're working in the wrong direction. And then that happened to me again, um, where I was going to have the culprit be a different character, and I was writing, coming up with ideas for for that storyline, and I wasn't really getting anywhere. And the real, I'm, I'm sharing with a lot of it. Technically, you know, the process stuff with you guys because you're film students. Hopefully, it's what you want to hear. But uh, yeah, no, that, that this this podcast is pretty much solely at this point where it's just for the people that want to know the technical stuff. Right. So. Okay. Good. Well, that's great because I, I really wish that the I you know that I'd heard more like stuff like this when I was in your situation because I think it would have saved me a lot of time. But I uh, so yeah, uh, as I was saying, you know, I, I I was I was stuck at a certain point in the script. I wasn't sure where it was going to go. How I was going to push it forward, and I kept having ideas, but they weren't revealing the next scene or the next sequence. They weren't telling me how I could get to the end of the second act or beyond. Mm. And what I realized is, oh, if you're stuck like that, you've just got to change something. Something that you don't even think needs changing has to be changed in order to unlock the flow again. And that's what I did. And then again, it flowed. And so when I say a year and a half, it wasn't a year and a half of like really, you know, like slowly cataloging, you know, ideas and writing scenes and dialogue and revising and revising and revising. It really was having a burst of ideas, then being stuck for a long time, then changing something, having a burst of ideas, then being stuck for a longer time probably. And then realizing, oh shit, I got to change something again. And then that maybe happened two other times. Uh, and then, then the script was ready and I went back to Adam and, uh, I, because I had a, you know, a, a celebrity, like a, you know, a star and an actor that people like, you know, attached to my movie, I, I naively expected that the process of financing it would be fairly simple because I was so confident about the script and I'd spent so much time in that world with that character. And I knew that it was a really dense script and that, you know, again, I, I just thought like, oh, that has to be a commodity. That has to be something that people mm-hmm. will take seriously. And I was dismayed to discover that it really isn't and that it doesn't matter how people respond to it creatively. They'll get excited. They'll tell you, you know, and, and genuinely they'll tell you how much they love something and, and you, know, you know, point to different things that particularly resonated. What it really came down to was viability of the cast. And because mm. this is such a a film led by Adam alone. He, you know, it's not the type of movie where he, you can, he can, you know, talk to his friends and suddenly you have like four actors leading your film who are all names. This was one really big role, uh, another fairly big role for a younger actor. And then a whole bunch of supporting roles, a lot of them for children, um, or at least younger performers. And, uh, that uh, was a, a, a real challenge. <laughs> um, and the movie that I wrote was larger than what we could have financed with just Adam alone. Uh, that's why it took so long. And it, it just required a lot of elements coming together in order to make it possible. And it seemed that it was going to happen every summer, I think for four summers, and, and something would fall away. And, you know, in the end, we got a verbal commitment from Telefilm and it was really just like we, we, we switched production companies, uh, pursued a different strategy, actually pursued a higher budget than what we were contemplating previously. And um, timing became a major, major part of it where we had producers who had relationships for a certain part of the financing that we could leverage, which made Telefilm, which is the Canadian financing um, body, you know, that's the government that that 
that that funds up to a third of budgets for independent filmmaking in Canada. Um, that that became viable, and finally we you know pushed it across the threshold. And uh, for so long, you know, I, I I was feeling like oh man, I was I feel feeling that the movie was cursed because it kept seeming like it could happen. All we needed was one element. All we needed was one actor, this actress we were looking at prior to Sophie and Lee's. All we needed was for her to say yes, and it, she that was enough of a name that it would go. And Things like that every year, and it just you know it always seemed like it was going to happen. It seemed like oh, this studio wants to, or this production company wants to do it. They want to put in this amount of money, um, or these people want to come on ex- executive producers. This famous like director wants to come on as an ex- executive. It's like so many times I celebrated getting you know the the, the what, what we thought were the you know, uh, the key moments in getting this finance, right. and then it just didn't happen. You're Sisyphus putting that rock up totally, and then. At a certain point, like each time it would hit me more and more because I was, you know, losing a lot of time. And this project was relying on me specifically for so much. And it wasn't like, oh, OK, wrote the script. I'm going to direct it, hand it off to the producers, let them do what they do. Like no one was as invested as me. you know. And that investment kept getting more and more and more scary and significant. Uh, the sunken costs were mounting and. You know, I just realized that, holy shit, before I, you know, I knew it, like I, I've spent all of, you know, my 30s so far <laughs> trying to get a film finance that I wrote when I was in my late 20s, you know, and uh, mm-hmm. that w- becomes a scary thing psychologically, particularly if you're a writer, a director, because then you're like, oh, shit, I don't want to fall too far behind myself. And uh, I got really down about it, but couldn't stop trying to do it, even though Adam, I think, checked out maybe a year prior to getting it done because he just didn't think it was going to happen and was suggesting that we that we make it as a series he didn't check out check out he just was not optimistic he kind of lost a lot of his hope for it and and also he he knew that he was like he was getting older and he was like i don't want to play this character when i'm 40 like he just told me flat out like i just don't want to do it like it's because i guess the character was you know still kind of like he's not really a man child but he's obviously he's he's you know it's a case of arrested development in many ways if i'd had another project that was close to ready it's possible i would have shifted gears but the kid detective was the center of my universe creatively for so long that i just couldn't give up on it and you know we thought we were looking good to shoot it that summer adam wasn't convinced but like enough enough things were happening that i was very optimistic about it and then early on one of those things sort of fell through and i just got super spooked and we changed the whole strategy went with a different production company and had a verbal commitment from Telefilm, um, thus screenlighting the film within, I think, like two months. They made us wait. <laughs> they made us wait. That's incredible. They made us wait a year, <laughs> I think, uh, in order <laughs> before we actually got the money. But we got it. Uh, it was the first time for them that they financed like a first feature uh, at this level, and uh, it, it was. It, it just felt like wow. Like we were just. We were relating to the right people at the right time. And then ultimately the crew and cast who came together to do it were perfect. Like I was just so lucky to be surrounded with the particular people who were pulled into the orbit of this project. And all those years of feeling like, oh, this project's cursed. Suddenly I realized, oh no, wait a second. This is actually as good as it could possibly be. It's actually happening. It's happening and it's happening the right way at the right budget level. Still very challenging budget level versus the script, but the right level much healthier than what we were pursuing in the, in the you know in, in pre- previous iterations mm-hmm. and um 
with with truly the right team of people and the people who were like soulfully committed to the film and, and, and really demonstrating what they could bring to it. So it really worked out as well as it possibly as well as it possibly could have for me in the long run to that point. Then, you know, the actual release uh, in the midst of COVID was much more challenging. I wasn't really walking on clouds at that point, um, but I, I couldn't feel better really about like how the journey of getting it made happened as long as an arduous as it was, you know, I wouldn't trade it. I mean, I would trade it for the education, but I wouldn't trade it for how it ultimately came together and the people that were a part of it. So you were talking about how you had to sort of manage the budget around how fantastical uh, a world you were trying to build. And I really like the sort of like pivoted earth sort of Twin Peaks-esque that you've created. Um, and where did you sort of like decide to like draw the line on how fictional you could get w- w- and still like have like a good foundation? Yeah, well, as far as like the idiosyncrasy of the world, I don't know if there even was specifically a line. I think the concept for it was, you know, imagine the world of Encyclopedia Brown or the world of Nancy Drew and that kind of perfect, you know, suburban setting where like everybody knows the mailman and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and and it already has a kind of strangeness to it because of just, you know, how interconnected everyone's lives are and how, you know, perfect kind of the veneer of that sort of uh, community is. And then imagine something terrible happens. You know, what does the darker version of that world look like? It's darker, but it's still the same kind of fanciful place. It's still, it's not, it was never realistic, you know, in Encyclopedia Brown. And it's still not realistic, the darker version. It's just a darker version. <laughs> and and so the things that could feel in, equally viable in, you know, the world of Encyclopedia Brown, Nancy Drew, blah, blah. Like, I think the Hardy Boys, maybe Nancy Drew as well. Like, maybe they saw more serious stuff sometimes. But for sure, with Encyclopedia Brown. Um, shoot, I forgot. I, I lost the train of thought for a moment. Um, in terms of you know, where the line is for that yeah, stuff. About, like, uh, how the the budget, and uh, or at least how oh, you, sure. you're grateful that you had sort of, like, chopped down your ideas because it kept you on a more manageable budget like you had a number and you had to like stick to it i guess yeah well i did not write with budget in mind and again relates to naivete and thinking that oh you know we got adam brody like it's you know and feeling confident about the script i think you know we should maybe be able to do it for like five million dollars a lot of things seem to come together in terms of just like you know people really wanting in my mind like wanting to see adam in a role like this and things that i thought would make the financing easier that ultimately didn't uh as far as like you know how far to take and twist the world like in the 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 overnighters for example could exist you know in the world of encyclopedia brown you know like like the the things the kids on the stoop could exist in the world of encyclopedia brown they just probably won't be drug users you know and and so all we're really doing is imagining the darker version of that really familiar setting that people have encountered in all sorts of children's literature and films whether it's you know it's like Peter brown etc or like you know little rascals dennis the menace that stuff uh as far as the budget i i was not writing for it and we actually did have to cut by far the most elaborate sequence of the movie oh. like maybe two weeks <laughs> before we started shooting 
um, because I realized that I was not going to get the time I needed, the, day, the number of days I needed on set to be able to get the performance that I was searching for. Um, and uh, when you're doing a film that is tonally specific, that is you know, the thing that I felt was most necessary to prioritize because it's not like when you're doing a realistic film or a naturalistic film uh, or even like a broad comedy, the tone was so specific that I know I knew it was going to be a process of honing in on set and just wanted to make sure I had time to do it. And so I just decided that I was going to cut the sequence, which was actually about the overnighters in the high school. And the original version of that was just much, much more elaborate. It involved hundreds of overnighters in the school having like a rave and all sorts of like wildness. And it was like the big set piece of the movie. Uh, Yeah, again, I cut it and had to rewrite that sequence, I think, two weeks prior to the start date. It was incredibly frightening. And, you know, I think I was really sick to my stomach, not not even losing the sequence, but having to supplement it with so little time. And again, in an odd way, I feel like it was for the best. I think that if we had tried to stage that very elaborate version of the sequence, the chances of it looking bad, (laughs) the chances of it not playing on screen the way I imagined it in my mind, and the chances of it feeling like an overlong tangent, you know, in a movie that Mm -hmm. already relies on a certain amount of indulgence from the audience, I think it could have been a disaster if we shot it as I wrote it. And the way that it ultimately worked out, I prefer atmospherically, I think. And, you know, I I was able to to add a couple jokes to it, which I still enjoy. And it became a more functional sequence in terms of taking us to the next clue, to the next scene. Um, So what scene did you rewrite it as? Well, so instead of him, you know, arriving in the midst of a rave, which was the original version of the script where there are kids all over the place, um, now the overnighters are a much, you know, like it's again, it's like a much smaller kind of subculture, right? Where it's just like, there's only like 12 kids in the school. Maybe there's, I don't know, maybe there's like 12 to 20 or something, you know, scattered throughout the school, but it's empty. It's still a quiet, dark school. There are just kids kind of running, you know, running around in the dark, just, you know, skittering around instead of a full scale party, which was going to be a much more surreal experience. Obviously, what we have instead is is more functional. They, they arrive at the first locker and then the second and then they find that you know, they use tissues and Adam's character is disgusted by it. And like, you know, we just find the bottle of drugs in the jacket like it, it, it's, it's more functional, but it still gives you what I think you want from this type of film, which is like the kind of Nancy Drew walking around in the dark with a flashlight. You know, it's that moment in this particular movie. We don't do it elsewhere. And it would have instead have been like a really big musical sort of like set piece that would not have been quite as tight or functional, may have may have offered a boost in terms of just like the world, you know, the 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 feel, the, the the grandeur of the of the story. No, I I I think you're right. I think this works way better. I I think so too. Yeah. I, I was going to say that the the movie really straddles this line of reality and I, I, I think it, it doesn't ever become too wacky or insane. Uh, and not to say that it would have been that, but I think the way you have it here uh, really keeps it within those boundaries. And that, that kind of helps pivot into another question I had, which is because of how difficult that tone is to balance in, in terms of your process, were you shooting different takes or like writing different versions of scenes slightly in dialogue? So like 
uh, a more comedic versus a more serious or different approaches and then figuring it out in the editing room or were you working really hard writing it and then just shooting specifically what was on the page no the script was the script i mean i had i'd spent so much time with it and then it had four years after i finished you know writing it to you know revise it and reread it and really scrutinize it and so Mm -hmm. you know i i walked onto the set feeling you know nerves you know about a whole number of things but what i was really relying on was the work that i'd already done and i was like i know what i'm searching for and that is going to assist me when it comes to everything else and so there weren't alt versions of scenes there were occasionally alt versions of lines if we felt like a joke was maybe potentially too uh provocative you know or if it wasn't going to land you know like there were maybe a couple safeties not a lot um there was a different version originally of how her parents died um that was the only stuff that i think i kind of had two rival scenes for and then i just chose one and shot it and then (laughs) and then i quite ironically decided it was the wrong choice (laughs) and found a way through sheer force of will and going through all of the rushes to try and find moments when i where i could maybe make it work to do the whole like three lines of it in adr which is the biggest cheat of the whole movie probably um to do it the other version the version that i decided not to shoot uh but otherwise it was really just like you know i i i trusted the tonal balance of the script you know the strategy from the beginning was like this is an elevated place but we're grounding it with performance you know and there it's joke 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 it's driven by humor and irony a lot of the time but we're going to play it real because where we're headed is extremely real you know and it Mm -hmm. will feel like the film is at odds with itself if we don't treat this character as as a real person you know and um the the strategy with respect to the script you know we've done the same thing with the dirties uh where it was a movie that is predominantly comic driven a lot of the time by comedy and ends with you know incredible it's some a horrifying incident a horrifyingly tragic disturbing incident and the way you do it is you just remind people what the stakes are you know you just remind people on page 10 oh real shit can happen here this girl just got kidnapped you know and then you remind people 10 pages later about the girl that got kidnapped or, or, you know, then there's another boy who's been murdered, you know, and, and, you know, a few pages after that, you're meeting that kid's family, his parents. And that's not funny at a certain point, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. and, and you're just, you you just want to remind people that even though this is, you know, um, a heightened reality, real things are still possible. Like there, there's still a sense of consequence. The stakes are still real. And, and so that was what I relied on, you know, going into it rather than trying to hedge my bets with respect to any of the dialogue that was scripted. And as far as, far as performance in the edit, it really just was finding that place um, where it is not so over the top that you're sacrificing the authenticity of the character or the environment, but it's not also so quiet and like so subdued that the film loses all of its energy. And that was a really difficult balance. Um, Finding that line in the edit was one of the bigger, one of the bigger challenges where it's like, Oh, okay. Where, you know, how far can we push it in one direction that favoring energy without sacrificing the authenticity? And look, it is like, you know, when you compare it with a much more sort of like broad, styled comedy like 
Like it, it's, 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 it's not a super high energy movie, but you're also dealing with a super low energy character. He's got no reason to be, you know, like fast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, um, I, I, Adam at a certain point was worried about it because he's so used to the opposite. He's so used to being brought onto a film where his particular function is to really, you know, inject energy, inject it. Totally, totally. It, it, with respect to, you know, Adam and his reservations, it's like he was worried that, well, he, just that he was being toned down too much and that it was going to lose its dynamism and that he wasn't able to like paint with all the colors the way that he typically would. And thank God that he'd said something because, you know, this was maybe after the first week of shooting, he mentioned something and like, you know, we came up with this system where I would always give him like the first takes on each lens, you know, just give him the first one or two takes on each lens. And it ended up being such a saving grace because when I stitched together the film my way, you know, with the takes that I had circled, it was there, there just wasn't enough dynamism, there just wasn't enough of that energy. And sometimes it's as simple as in the diner, you know, he says a line and he has a piece of lettuce in his mouth and he slurps it up at the end of his line. You know what I mean? Sometimes it's as simple as that, <laughs> that, 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 that gives you just what you need, you know, in, in, in terms of a slightly heightened energy, something slightly more than what's realistic and, 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 and what's entirely true or honest, you know what I mean? To the actual character and to the actual moment um, to, to get you through it. And uh, yeah, again, it was like with the writing, it was not such a challenge because I, I, cause I, I, I'd known how it worked with the dirties. And so I, I, I felt like I could pull it off again in this, with this particular story. And it really wasn't until the editing that I was looking through takes I'd already seen and really trying to find anything that was different, anything that would just give it a, a, like a little bit of a boost in, 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 in an odd way. And then a lot of those got stitched into the film. And by virtue of doing that, it raised the energy level. And some people will still watch this movie and be like, oh, it was, you know, like he's, there, there was just no energy. It was too low energy. But, you know, I, I think like for, for me, I, I, I really love straight face comedy. I love when, when something is funny without having to wink at the audience and when actors are funny without sacrificing the, you know, the authenticity or the truth of the character. And, and I just find it more satisfying. And, and the filmmakers who I love the most are people who, you know, have, have practiced that their whole careers. And, um, and, you know, it was just an interesting to kind of be in this situation where it really relied ultimately on a, a kind of fortuitous, you know, I won't say, conflict but like disagreement you know between me and like you know the, my, my 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 lead actor in order to have our you know our cake and eat it too in order to kind of get the best of both and uh, uh again now it'll inform how i you know, approach the next one and and um i i probably will do the same thing where it's like you know either start more grounded and work your way up or you know start high and you know then Whittle start your way to down Exactly. Yeah. And, and have that variety because it is so important to have options with respect to the edit. You know, we wrote a really literal movie and people warned me that, oh, it's going to change so much when you get into the edit. And I was like, no, no, no. I mean, like I've been staring at this thing for years. Like I know what I, I know what I want. And like I was blown away by what we ultimately had to change and push and reconsider and rewrite you know, in the midst of the edit and how many cheats exist, not just what I was saying before about like looping in audio that was never even coming out of the characters' mouths. And we did do that a few times, but also like there are, there are like fucking like split screens all over my movie with like respect to two shots where I like wow. one actor's delivery in one take. 
Oh, does he? Does he do that? <laughs> oh yes, yeah, very much so. <laughs> I didn't even know. He, he'll stitch yeah, like so, four or five different takes together. Oh, that's funny. I wasn't even aware. We we just found did it out of really truly like you know wanting the best of two different out takes. of desperation. Yeah, yeah, and it's everywhere. And like when we revealed the number of VFX in this movie to the people that were doing our VFX, they were blown away because they thought they were going to be like 10, you know, like 10 digital mm-hmm. effects. The treehouse, for example, is a, a digital effect. Um, we didn't build it. But then there was just so many that no one will ever watch the movie and know. And that was really, really interesting. So I'm sure a unique challenge to writing and directing a comedy is to try to compare like what you predict like the average moviegoer will think is funny like versus what you think is funny and then like i would imagine uh it's kind of hard to see if that's coming across on the set because you wrote it and so you're just looking at everyone being like i don't want to laugh my own jokes but is this funny guys haha you know yeah well i was definitely not gonna laugh at those jokes no matter what because i was so used to them but i uh them for eight years (laughs) yeah yeah but i uh i have you know when i when i'm writing i always share with my partner uh who is like the unsung hero of this movie who's who who, uh uh, every time i'm writing a new scene i'll read it to her and she was the first person i shared the script with and if she tells me something is you know bad or doesn't work i'll get angry and i'll defend it and you know maybe we'll have a fight but Deep down, I know it's bad, I know it doesn't work, and I remove it. Conversely, if she tells me that it's great or that it's good or that it's funny, then I don't think twice about it. And the reason I can trust it is because I know that we have the same taste. I know that we have the same sense of humor. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, for me, I don't really like comedies that appeal to everybody uniformly. I like things that don't a little bit more niche yeah exactly and even something that's super broad like dumb and dumber you know which is like extremely broad comedy and really obviously a huge hit you know uh it still takes so many risks and um it, it pushes it so far that of course there were people who watched that movie and didn't get it and hated it. And in fact, I think the critics didn't get it and hated it. And uh, it probably still has a rotten score, you know, and yet it's probably one of the most brilliant screenplays of like the nineties. I think Roger Ebert like retracted a review he gave of it and said he was wrong. And Jim Carrey said that that was one of his favorite moments of his career. That's (laughs) awesome. Yeah, that's good for him. I mean, that's great. I, I I think, you know, more should follow suit. Like, it's incredible to me that you could watch that movie and not be, you know, in awe of the creativity and the cleverness of that dialogue and the audacity of that premise. And, uh, and so I guess, you know, but returning to the question, like, I'm not really worried about, you know, trying to make everybody laugh. I only want to make myself laugh and the people who have my, you know, particular sense of humor which i know is not super super you know small you know like like you know all my friends have the same humor and like you know and we love the movies that are we all love the same comedies for the same reason and um right and i think that that has to be the way forward because it's kind of fruitless you know i mean it's it's a you know impossible to appeal to everybody and then b like why would you want to like why would you want you know why would you want something that sits in the middle as far as the you know testing the the, the humor you know like again once i have those conversations with my partner i share it with my friends who i really trust and then you know that's where i gain my confidence with respect to the document is just sharing it with people whose opinion 
I really trust. And, you know, Adam was one of those people. And I have a few other really, you know, dear friends, most of whom were from film school that I, that I'll send it to whose opinions I trust. And then as far as on set, you know, it relates to my personal taste, but I just don't love when, you know, you see the actor winking on the camera. I, 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 I think that there, it can be beautiful. And Adam did a lot of it in like the OC, you know what I mean? Where like, that where he's really breaking under the formula of the show in a way that does, you know, like it, 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 it heightens the world of the show, you know, like when Adam is really doing his thing in some of the best moments of that series. Um, and I love it and I love, I love it. And, uh, but with respect to this particular, to this particular tone where we have concerns about where we're headed in terms of the overall story, you know, I want to believe that like, if the line is told, tr- you know, in a way that's true to the character, you know, where it's not being injected with like more than it needs, or it's not like being feeling hammy or like a, like a Saturday night live sketch, uh, Saturday, Saturday night live sketch. Um, I, I feel like that's going to be funnier. And so when I'm on the monitor, all I'm really looking for is the authentic delivery. The one there I hear it, I'm like, Oh yeah, that's, that's Abe. I know it, you know? And, um, mm-hmm. and that's when I, I, I know we can move on or, you know, put on the next lens and, and, and do it again with respect to the edit, you know, that's where it becomes a whole different thing because what works on the page doesn't always work. Um, once you're cutting it together, so much relies on things that you can't control on the day and that you wouldn't be able to evaluate. Uh, and so much is related to rhythm. And what was really tough about doing this film and finishing this movie in the pandemic was we never watched it with an audience, still have never seen it with an audience. Um, mm-hmm. And so you've never uh, heard like where the laughs, the, the group laughs are supposed to be, I guess. Never, never heard it. No, I, I, I can't wait till we finally have an occasion to do that. Um, so, you, so you never had like a test screening or anything? We did with rough, rough versions um, okay. and with smaller groups. So we had, let's say five people, I think was the, the, the uh, largest number a, that we had. That's not a group laughter. no. No, but it tells you some of what you need. You know what I mean? And even honestly, two people, you can watch it with one person and know whether jokes are landing or not. And a lot of the time in the earlier cuts of the film, they weren't like there's something that wasn't quite working. And um, it related to just the pacing overall of the film scenes that were there that we ultimately had to extract in order to um, to provide, I guess, a greater sense of uh purpose like just like there there were scenes that existed that did not advance the story that were there for the sake of character and allowing the audience to identify with adam's character i thought on a deeper level or in a way where they would recognize themselves in him turned out i didn't need them because of his performance because people because of you know what he brings to the role people already kind of like him even if he's acting Mm -hmm. in ways that are selfish you know he's people are people are recognizing themselves in him because of what he brought to it. And I think that that is a real like testament to his talent and his particular, you know, just charisma uh, to his manner. I don't think there are a lot of actors who could have done it. And so we didn't need those scenes, but it took me as the writer director a while to see that. And I'll give credit to, you know, my producer will on this project who saw stuff even at the script level and he was like you're gonna cut that and i was like no i won't like it's pe- people love that scene i'm not gonna cut it you know and mm-hmm. i cut it <laughs> and on the in the script it really worked because there's you know you, the relationship that you have when you read a script is, is very similar to reading a book 
where you really, you really the, the character really is your avatar and you really are experiencing the world through that character in a very direct way. And I had a scene where Adam's character writes an email and then rewrites it and then rewrites it. <laughs> it was fucking like mm-hmm. two, two and a half pages, you know, and people really loved it in the script. And it was a point of endearment for the character. But on camera, it wasn't just an issue of it not being cinematic to see a character write and rewrite. It was just people were starting to wonder where is this movie going? And then that puts twice as much pressure on the next scene. And so those jokes don't have the punch that they would otherwise have. Compounding effect. It's true. And and when you lose people early, you know, I realized they're not coming back. Exactly. They're, they're not coming back. And even in the first five minutes, we had uh, scenes that we added to his first encounter with the parents, which is the first dialogue driven scene of the film, literally the first dialogue of the film. And we I didn't write it uh, with a, with jokes out of the gate. You know, I wrote it as a more kind of like realistic version of kind of what I'd experienced with my own parents in my 20s when they were like bringing me groceries um, <laughs> and worrying about me. And um, I. Uh, uh, I thought that 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 would be enough that like, oh, other people would sort of like recognize the dynamic and that that would be a point of engagement. And it wasn't. And instead, Mm -hmm. I had to change again in the edit, the first lines of that scene, rewrite them and disguise them with the editing to build jokes into it that weren't there in order to clarify the tone of the movie for people immediately so that they weren't waiting five minutes to determine whether or not this was a comedy. They weren't waiting to get into the flashback sequence to determine whether or not it's going to be funny, you know? And it's true that if you're losing people early, it is so tough to get them back versus if they laugh at the first joke, the chances of them laughing at the second are so are much, much higher. higher. Yeah. And and then again, it builds on that. And um, it was unbelievable to me, truly, you know, as confident as I felt about the script, it was unbelievable to see the difference between the way people engage with a piece of writing and the way that they engage with it as an audience, mm-hmm. you know, uh, watching something play out in front of them on a lower budget film where you don't have the opportunity to um, really get a lot of footage, you know, like you, you, you can't make uh, a, a really super atmospheric, you know, film on a lower budget, unless that is specifically the intent, you know what I mean? Like, and in a world that is elevated where everything has to be controlled and you're relying on extras for everything, basically that you want to cut to you, 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 you can't over rely on atmosphere. You just don't have it in your footage. Um, like we went back out a year after we shot the movie or almost a year after we shot the movie to get extra B roll. Um, because I realized, oh, sh- like we really do, we really do need it. We need more of a sense of the world than what we have. And I knew at the level of the script that that's what I wanted, but I was just, you know, told early I had to make tough choices and that that was going to be impossible to build into our schedule. Um, and so what this film really relied on was jokes landing <laughs> in, 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 in order to get, in order to win people over early and then keep them for the duration. Right. So sort of speaking about moving, translating the text into visuals, I wanted to ask uh, what kind of conversations you had with your DP. Is it Michael McLaughlin? Yeah, McLaughlin. Okay. Uh, Regarding the look, because it's got a very, it's not overstated, but it's got a very particular visual style. And I was wondering how you guys landed on that. Okay. So this is really interesting. I'll start by saying that with respect to the way it was lit and like the color palette of the film, 
I didn't, I wasn't, I didn't want it to look like the Maltese Falcon. You know, I didn't, I wasn't, I, I didn't want it to look like a super high, high contrast noir. Um, the, the, this film certainly sits between, you know, the realm of the hard boiled detective story, Raymond Shamlin, Dashiell Hammett, and that of Encyclopedia Brown, you know, it, it, and Nancy Drew. It exists in the space in between, but I felt like it had to be a kid detective movie with a really dark destination. You know, I didn't need to see another high contrast noir. I wanted to see a different version of it. I wanted to see, you know, Abe Applebaum's version of the noir, Encyclopedia Brown's version of it. I wanted to keep the color, certainly, you know, with respect to the flashback sequence. I mean, that's like a no-brainer. That had to be, you know, as as kind of bright and um, uh, saturated as... Optimistic, as, you know, yeah. Exactly. It's through the rose-colored glasses that he's looking at his past. Like, it even sounds like a creative choice. Well, I guess it is a creative choice. Oh, yeah, it, it is. And, and, you know, again, it's like it, it was obvious. Like, it, the way that it's written, you know, you, you already know what it's going to look like. Um, with respect to the rest, there is more ambiguity. And um, we didn't, it was really for me, it's like I wanted a certain degree of contrast. I was worried that if we did try and do it like a, like a, a full on noir um, and, you know, there was shadow over half the frame or half someone's face, I thought that it would interfere with the comedy. And I was looking for examples of comedies that were similarly, you know, that were comparable to, to this tonally that did that. And I couldn't find any. You know, I think like A Serious Man is an example of a movie that, that we looked at because, again, it's it's an elevated world, you know, but it's not the big Lebowski. I was looking at those kinds of things and I was just like, OK, I don't want shadow over half the faces. I don't want to do it because I fear that tonally it's going to make things challenging for me, particularly if I'm going with grounded performances. I, I worry that we will lose the humor. Right. And and and, I, and so for that reason, um, I wanted something that was that was a bit brighter, that was not as bright as the flashback sequence. We had to recognize a difference between, you know, um, the cleanliness, the color of that sequence versus what the world of the story looks like today. I thought it was, a, you know, it was on a gradient and I was just like, it, we, we can achieve a lot of that stuff by um, making the world just look dingier. The storefronts are empty. We have graffiti on a window and, you know, it, it just feels like it's a little bit grayer. It's a little cloudier, you know, it's not quite the same. <laughs> like we, we, we still wanted some contrast. We wanted the frames to feel dynamic. And again, it was very much like with the tone in terms of performance, it was really just finding the right line for it. Um, oh yeah. Okay. Like shot listing and stuff like that. This is a challenging movie because it's so stationary. Really, mm. when you're looking at the script from the eye of the DP, I hadn't realized this until he was, you know, flagging it in our earlier conversations. Like there, it, it's characters sitting, having conversations across the table. Like that's most of the kid detective, you know, we, and, we were going to ask you about whether you had a storyboarding process or a shot listing process. Yeah. We, yeah, we didn't storyboard, but we we did we shot listed, and we had a lot of time to talk about it. And um, I discovered that a lot of stuff was, you know, it was really, really, it was really just my DP pulling it out of me because he, because I obviously had been living in this world for such a long period of time, and he just wanted to see what I saw, you know, when I was reading the script, just pulling it out of me and finding the language for it and turning it to something functional and practical. And um, the first thing that that he flagged that became a real you know, it was it was something that we were wary of. It was just yes, this is a very stationary film. Like the, most of it is, 
you know, <laughs> Adam's character talking across the tabletop, the first scene with his parents, living room, talking across a coffee table, you know. Then we have mm-hmm. the flashbacks stuff where he's in his treehouse, he's in his office, at least that moves more quickly. And then we're on the other side of that, and it's him sitting across the desk talking to people in his office. Then he's talking to Sophie and Elise's character in his office. And then they're going around town and interviewing people talking across coffee tables, you know, and like, uh, you know, interrogation tables. And then the whole climax of the movie is a conversation happening across a table, right? And so, you know, at that point, like, oh, this isn't going to be like Boogie Nights where like the camera is like flying around the room. It wouldn't make any sense. It wouldn't make any sense at all. And the only option is either you try and rewrite some of these scenes or reblock it in a way that that will, you know, uh, allow for more variety, which is what we explored. And, you know, we had blocked scenes in the office where he wasn't sitting, right, and where he's moving around a bit more just to try and create something that just felt different from the previous version of that scene. And it was fucking with the comedy. It was completely killing the comedy. And, and, and so he, my DP was like, look, you've been working on this for six years. Let's not take any chances. You know, let's, yeah, let's, let's concentrate on the, you know, on, on the rhythm of the dialogue and let's make sure that you're getting that and just see what we see what happens. And, 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 you know, I think like he really did a beautiful job. I love the film, the way the world looks. It was something I couldn't describe. I kept trying to find a movie that I could point to and be like, that's what I want it to look like. That's what I want it to look like. And I, I couldn't find it. I just couldn't. Um, mm. in terms of like where we were sitting on that line between, you know, how flat it is versus how about you know, how, how flat versus how contrast or, you know, and, and, and then with respect to the color and brightness of it, uh, that w- it is what we did, you know? And so it might not, again, it, it's something that, oh, people, some people might be like, oh, uh, why didn't they light it like a noir? You know what I mean? And it's like, the, the, this was what we wanted. This is what I always wanted to do. Uh, you know, the next movie I make, probably there'll be less sitting. <laughs> and I'm just really pleased that, like, you know, the work that was done in terms of the, the dialogue and the story and all that stuff, like, I don't think a lot of people get to the end of it and realize that that's what they've watched, you know, as a movie with people talking across tables. You know, it doesn't feel like um, My Dinner with Andre, you know, or like no. something like that or 12 Angry Men. And um, and I'm really relieved because it was a risk. With, with shooting it the way until, it until you mentioned it I genuinely like now that you're saying it I'm realizing it but I really didn't even think of it in those terms like as that kind of a movie until you mentioned it I think because you're I mean whether it's a red herring or a dead end or you know uh, or, or the the detective story like you're always on the edge of your seat like a pivotal piece of information or a clue could come out so I don't I, I I feel like that that kept the momentum going so much that I didn't even think that people were sitting next to each other, whether in a car or at, at tables the whole time, essentially. Well, it's a great relief to me. You know, I, I, I look, I, you know, wasn't thinking about it when I was writing it because I was thinking about it in exactly that way, which was just like, you know, um, continuing to allow humor to drive a lot of these scenes while doling out enough information to make it seem like the film is headed somewhere you know of course that's me you know as someone who really does relate to movies that i watch as a as a writer you know like i said at the beginning the movies that i you know love the most are the ones that i just like oh man like i just i i love the ingenuity on the level of the script you know and um uh, and then, of course, when I pass it over to my DP, who's approaching it from a very different perspective, you know, it's the first thing he notices. It's like, fuck, like, you know, how are we going to keep this interesting? 
And it, it, it you know, it was, it was a, it, a risk for sure that we made on the, on the day, a lot of the time in terms of like, you know, trying to lock it a different way. And then you know, saying, no, 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 it's not going to work. Let's do it the way that it was originally scripted. We're starting again, like move the camera, relight it. Like we, we did that a couple of times. It just, you know, again, it proves that like story really is like the guiding light, you know, and if, and if you can reward people's engagement, you know, with the information that they're craving or the sense of progress that they're craving or, you know, keeping them uh, amused or, you know, uh, keeping them laughing or whatever, uh, or surprised in terms of like the way a scene might turn and become suddenly more serious, like then that that is ultimately what matters and and so at the end of the day you might not have made good fellas right but like you've told this story as well as it as it could have been told with the you know the time and the you know, instruments that you had available to do so and so you know i i feel really reassured by that but it will 100 percent you know factor into my writing process from now on um and and that's great so with this being your first feature film, uh, we were wondering which aspect of the job like you were surprised by and also how long the shooting schedule was and also if you made a cameo in the film. <laughs> uh, okay, well, it, we had 26 days, um, which is pretty good for like an indie uh, film. Um, very challenging with a script that was the length of this script, which the shooting script I believe was 128 pages with a lot of different locations and a lot of different actors. Um, so it was really, really tough. And each day ultimately became kind of like an absolute mad dash. So whatever the last scene was on the call sheet, I started to learn was going to be a crazy, crazy, crazy scene. And it was, and like, I mean, crazy in the sense of like, our DP had like buckets of sweat dripping off of him and he, and, and he's having to go and run and, you know, reframe this and relight that. And like, you know, we just, I get three takes to get an entire actor's performance. Like, you know, the, the scene towards the end of the film, you know, at the very end of the climax after the mystery has been resolved and it's Adam's character in a field, right. On a phone. I had two takes <laughs> to get that entire scene of dialogue Jesus, (laughs) and um uh that happened every single day but one of this shoot and uh and so that was really crazy so it was really tight um what was the other questions i know there's the cameo was another one in between uh as a first time director was there any like responsibility or aspect that like good or bad surprised you or that you weren't expecting you know I'm, i would probably need a little more time to think of like what the right the right answer is to that question um no it's all right to tell tell us if you made a cameo oh, oh yeah oh yeah cameo uh well firstly i'll just say that i was losing my mind in prep i i was just uh really worried about a lot of things that i was concerned were not going to come together in time we didn't have our cast you know with like days to spare before shooting like there were still roles that i hadn't cast uh even when we started shooting and a lot of things like that, that I was just really concerned about. And of course, I've been working on this movie for so long. Everything is, is happening now. Everybody's here and it's kind of mine to mess up in a way, you know? Yeah. And um, so I was really anxious uh, about that. I guess what I was surprised by in a really positive way was how that dissipated instantly. Um, walking onto the set, 
the first day, you know, sure, I was sick to my stomach when I woke up, you know, but, you know, ran to the bathroom, like the moment my eyes opened. But like, I uh, walked onto the set and it was exactly like, you know, making a student film or a short film. You know, it shrinks down to the size of your monitor and you're just engaging with what's in that frame. And you just know when you have what you need. And um, um, that was a really, really positive surprise. And I think that the actual production, the actual shoot was probably the most fun part of the entire process even though it was crazy and every day ended you know in a mad dash and i was you know living day to day um the the collaboration was so exhilarating the process of making it and knowing that we were getting it was really exciting and exhilarating and um it was a positive experience whereas prep for me was not so not so positive and there were lots of times lots of weeks and even months in the edit that were not so positive and obviously the the process to get it financed was not was not so positive, um, you know, until it was, but so that's what I would say the biggest surprise for me was. And then, yeah, I did, I did make a cameo, but it's very short. So the, uh, old movie that he's watching, uh, as an adult, when he predicts that it was the maid who was the killer, Mm. um, the black and white film was something that we shot ourselves. And, uh, Oh really? Yeah. That's so, so convincing. You had, you had us fooled. That's amazing. (laughs) We just thought it was some, some black and white movie. We would, we'd never hear of again. Well, it was, it was supposed to be, and, uh, (laughs) we did not have it in our schedule. Me and my partner and our DP all got together and we shot it ourselves. And my partner is the one who plays the maid and I am the hand with the knife. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> that, awesome. Nice. That comes, that comes down on her. And yeah, we just did, we did it the three of us and, um, uh, and you know, degraded it and made it look older and found a stock film, uh, that matched with it. So it starts with a real movie that we bought. That was like, you know, that was cheap enough for us to license. Mm. And then it cuts mm. to the fake movie, which is, I think just mm. three, three shots and then pretty tight. And, uh, um, you know, thankfully it worked, but, uh, yeah, that was, I guess that was, that was my closest thing to a cameo. It was just my hand as I stabbed my partner to death. So the last specifically kid detective related question we have is just about, uh, Jay McCarroll and, uh, his score for the movie, which I, I really liked and uh, it was really distinctive. And I was wondering, uh, what your working relationship with him was, uh, when he was scoring the movie. Uh, that it was just another amazing, uh, collaboration for me. And I had a lot of them. I mean, all of my heads of departments were just the best. And, uh, Jay, I've known forever. Um, uh, we were roommates, <laughs> uh, years ago. And, um, he's, so he's just been a, a good friend of mine for a long time. And, um, uh, when I finally got this film made, he was like wanting to chat about it. And, um, uh, you know, because I, I've, I've always known that Jay was like an extraordinary musical talent and uh, he can just play anything at the drop of a hat. And uh, he has a great band and he's always he, he, he did a score for a short film, actually, that I made a few years before um, and which was great. Um, but going into this, I was like, I don't have experience on a movie at this level. So my first instinct was to surround myself with people who had lots of experience with a movie on that level. And um, I'm so glad that I ultimately totally flipped and, and, you know, went with people who were looking for, you know, an equivalent kind of like step up and look like a lot of our heads of departments have done feature films before. 
Um, but this was a, a step up for everybody, at least in terms of the budget. And with Jay, it was the first one that was like this that he scored that was so score reliant where the score was going to be foregrounded in such a way and was so uh, important in terms of creating, defining the atmosphere and also you know, creating a, a, yeah, a sense of uh, propulsion with respect to the story and the content of you know the scenes and man that was just uh i it, it was it was just amazing like um he's so so brilliant writes so quickly and uh with with respect to him it was really very similar to um my experience with my dp where he was kind of trying to pull it out of me you know i didn't have the musical language to be able to explain to him exactly what i wanted and so he had to find a way to pull it out the same way that my DP did when we were talking about the shots and the shot listing and the look of the film. And he was really, you know, strategic. He was just very aggressive about that. And, um, he, you know, we would talk about the flashback sequence, for example. And I didn't want it to seem, you know, like, again, with the, the broader conversation with respect to this movie was I never wanted it to feel like a spoof. So mm. I didn't want it to feel like a, like a, you know, a detective short movie where, you know, made by like like a 12 year old or whatever where it's like the the real brassy you know heavy like sacks of like or i don't know like just you know she walked in and uh she had legs up to her chin and shit like that where you like you you know you know what i'm talking about right where like it has a very detective-y spoofy slow jazzy kind of um sound i was like it can't be that because that turns it into a skit you know but it also can't be disconnected from the detective genre like otherwise it's just it it can't be that and it can't not be that exactly so much like every other part of this process it's what is the balance you know where is that line between those two worlds where it has enough of a relationship with that kind of detective aura that detective you know that classic detective atmosphere um but not so much that it feels like a spoof film or a parody um and uh, and that it, that it's you know that it that it works in tandem with the visuals, which again are on their own, writing their own line, you know. Uh, so much like with performance, with the you know the, the look of the film and everything, it was really just finding that like perfect balance with with respect to the music. And goddamn, he did. He and, and uh, uh, it, it again, it just took a few tries. Like he sent me some stuff, and I was like, no, it's too detectivey. And then he sends me something else, and I'm like, it's not detectivey enough. And so for him, he can either pull it all his hair and be like, holy shit, why did I ask to do this, you know? <laughs> or he can do what he did, which is like really, really hone in. And uh, he composed so much more music for this movie than I than I think most composers do. I think most composers they give you like three shots of something. Me and Jay, like, oh man, there's a mountain of stuff, wonderful stuff, beautiful stuff that he did. And uh, as a result, you know, like I felt like like his work completes the illusion in terms of this movie and really putting it on the shelf with those detective films that we always aspire to, you know, um, uh, it, it completes, you know, like on a, on a smaller budget, it makes it viable it like really helped it all feel complete with respect to what he offered in terms of the score. And, um, one other thing, Oh yeah. With respect to the mountains of music, stuff like that, there was one theme that he did it was the toughest theme in the whole film. And we didn't know that it would be, we really didn't think that it would be. And it was the second last scene of the movie. And for those who were listening, who haven't watched, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll resist too many details, but like, it's a really delicate moment between two characters you know, it can't, again, we found ourselves needing a different kind of balance where it can't feel too sad, but it also can't feel too bright. 
and optimistic. It's a very tricky balance. And he wrote this incredibly beautiful melody um, with days to spare. We had to lock the film in days. We had to deliver the movie in days. We were up against the film festival deadline. had to be done. And so he completes this melody maybe three or four days out. We're watching the whole film for the first time with everything done. And I get to that scene and I'm like, shit, it's not right. It's too happy. There's too much warmth. And it was one of the most beautiful pieces he'd done, but there was, there was too much warmth. And it was changing the emotion of the scene. It was changing the entire meaning of the scene. And it was one of the few scenes where that was a, was a liability. And uh, so I was like, Jesus, like, we got to redo it. And he went home that night and recomposed the whole thing. We put it into the movie the next day and it was perfect. And it was just like, holy shit, like, thank God I listened to um, the gnawing voice in my head because I wasn't totally sure. And I, he, I, he'd already worked so hard on it and was so proud of this piece that I was like, I was like, I was like, I don't, I don't know. Do I, um, is it just me? You know, am I just reading too much into it? Like, should I say something? Is it reasonable to ask him to go back to scratch on this? It's hard to ask someone to do something for like the se- the seventh time. Well, yeah. And, and literally it was the seventh piece that he composed. And like, it was something like, like that. And, uh, and if I hadn't, uh, listened to that voice, the ending of the movie would not have worked. It's as simple as that. And it's crazy how high the stakes are. And it's just incredible when you have people who are talented enough and, you know, and care enough to be able to pivot like that and really dig in and make the best possible movie that they can make. And I just felt truly honored to be surrounded by those people with respect to this movie. And it is just so important. And another thing we did, which I'll share because, you know, it's for film students. Um, the advantage of having a team of people who all had something that they wanted to prove was immeasurable. Like the, the, everybody was just pushing it as hard as they could, giving you more than I think that, that you would get from someone who had already kind of like, you know, who, 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 who had already proven it again and again, you know? And again, I, I, I feel again, like this film would not have been possible if, uh, if, if I, if I'd been, if I followed my original instinct, right. Which was to just surround myself with the people who had the most experience possible, who had already, you know, who'd done it a million times already. We would not have done it on this budget. You needed the starving artists. Yeah, no, for real. So our big kahuna last final question is what was the last great film you watched? Hmm. Like as in the one that was released most recently. Um, no, no, not necessarily. The one that you viewed and enjoyed most recently. Gosh, oh man, uh, I have such a bad memory. Okay, well, or, or, all right, I don't know. This is a movie that I, I really liked when I was young and I hadn't watched it in a while. And after I had finished The Kid Detective and started reading people comparing it to like a bunch of other noirs, it just got me interested in like revisiting a bunch that I hadn't looked at prior to making the film. And um, I, I looked at LA Confidential again for the first time in years and was blown away by it. I just thought it was like such an extraordinary, such a, you know, uh, incredibly atmospheric cinematic experience. And again, just such a satisfying noir mystery story where like impossible to imagine it with a different cast. And, uh, um, 
yeah, I uh, I was so pleased with how well it held up and how much I enjoyed it. And I feel like that's often not the experience when I put on movies that I really enjoyed when I was a kid. Often I feel like they, in some ways, just haven't, they don't work as well or they feel a little cornier to me a lot of the time. And this one I was just like, just so impressed with like it as a, as a piece of film. Like I just thought that uh, it was such a, you know, being transported to that particular place and time with that particular sensibility um, was just, was just wonderful. Loved it. Well, I'm that, I think that's a great place to wrap up Trent. Yes. Thank you so much to Evan Morgan, uh, writer and director of the kid detective. Uh, thank you so much for being here. We appreciate your time. Oh, happy to chat guys. <laughs> Thanks for having me. So Parth, wasn't that interview pretty great? I thought so. I had a pretty good time. One of my favorites to date. Yeah. I mean, I think getting to hear, you know, how the whole movie got made, the whole process, eight years was a long time. I really liked all his little stories he gave us. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. So I guess next week you can hear us talk about the movie. I'm excited to rewatch this film to talk about it with you. Because I really liked yeah. it the first time around because, uh, you know, I had to watch it before I interviewed the director. Meh, you know, so yeah. annoying. It annoyed Trent a lot, yeah. I was like, Parth, you're forcing me to watch this movie just so I can have more informed questions. Ugh. And then he sent me to my room. I did. And told him to eat so that we could record the intro for this episode. Yeah, Parth, you like don't let me leave the dinner table until I eat all my vegetables. I'm just cool like that. I just want you to fulfill the food pyramid, Trent. Bring it back around. You see what I did there? Yeah. All right. Anyone who's come this far, um, thanks for your time. We love you. And give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Rate us. Follow us. Follow us on our Instagram. Follow us on our Twitter. Do the whole thing. Guys, come on. We're here for you. Yeah, we do the show for our fans. Parth, you know, I recently saw on our analytics that we have, like, a very small percentage of our listeners are from different countries. If you're listening to this and you're in a different country, let us know. Please, we want to hear it. Outside of the continental United States, please. Even if you're in Alaska or Hawaii. All right. So join us next week for the discussion of this movie. Yeah. This is already a long episode. If you made it this far, it's like an hour 20, an hour 25. Yeah, maybe find like a hobby that. is what Parth is trying to say. But well, well, find a hobby listening to this podcast. But after the Kid Detective discussion, the next slate will be announced. Well... Well, it's more complicated than that. It's it's we've got some I mean, I guess I don't want to say what, what what's coming next, but let's just say we have some interesting stuff coming up for uh, a holiday that's uh showing up pretty soon. Yeah, Parth, I was going to say wouldn't you say it'd be fair to say that Craft Services has several special, you know, sort of month-long things planned, sort of uh. Yeah, w- would that be fair to say? I'm not a judge. I wouldn't. I would never presume to know what's fair. Um, let's just. How about we just leave it at that? All right. All right. <clears throat> Goodbye. That's it. Bye, guys. End of episode. See you next time. Yeah. <laughs>